Letter ninety nine of Pamela, Volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eva Davis. Pamela, Volume two by Samuel Richardson. Letter ninety nine. My dear Lady G, I received your last letter at Paris as we were disposing everything for our return to England after an absence of near two years, in which, as I have informed you, from time to time I have been a great traveller into Holland, the Netherlands, through the most considerable province of France, into Italy, and, in our return to Paris again, the principal place of our residence, through several parts of Germany. I told you of the favours and civilities we received at Florence, from the then Countess Dowager of Blank, who, with her humble servant, Lord C., that had so assiduously attended her for so many months in Italy, accompanied us from Florence to Innsbruck. Her ladyship made that worthy lord happy in about a month after she parted from us, and the noble pair gave us an opportunity at Paris, in their way to England, to return some of the civilities which we received from them in Italy, and they are now arrived at her ladyship's seat on the forest. Her lord is exceedingly fond of her, as he well may, for she is one of the most charming ladies in England, and behaves to him with so much prudence and respect that they are as happy in each other as can be wished. And let me just add that both in Italy and at Paris, Mr. B.'s demeanour and her ladyship's to one another was so nobly open and unaffectedly polite, as well as highly discreet, that neither Lord C., who had once been jealous of Mr. B., nor the other party, who had had a tincture of the same yellow evil, as you know, because of the Countess, had so much as a shadow of uneasiness remaining on the occasion. Lord Davers has had his health, which had begun to decline in England, so well that there was no persuading Lady Davers to return before now, although I begged and prayed I might not have another little Frenchman, for fear they should, as they grew up, forget, as I pleasantly used to say, the obligations which their parentage lays them under to dearer England. And now, my dearest friend, I have shut up my rambles for my whole life, for three little English folks, and one little Frenchman, but a charming baby as well as the rest, Charlie by name, and a nearer prospect of a further increase, you will say, are family enough to employ all my cares at home. I have told you from time to time, although I could not write to you so often as I would, because of our being constantly in motion, what was most worthy of your knowledge relating to every particular, and how happy we have all been in one another. And I have the pleasure to confirm to you what I have often written, that Mr. B. and my Lord and Lady Davers are all that I could wish and hope for with regard to their first duties. We are indeed a happy family, united by the best and most solid ties. Miss Goodwin is a charming young lady. I cannot express how much I love her. 
she is a perfect mistress of the French language, and speaks Italian very prettily. And as to myself, I have improved so well under my dear tutor's lessons, together with the opportunity of conversing with the politest and most learned gentry of different nations, that I will discourse with you in two or three languages, if you please, when I have the happiness to see you. There's a learned boaster for you, my dear friend, if the knowledge of different languages makes one learned. But I shall bring you an heart as entirely English as ever, for all that. We landed on Thursday last at Dover, and directed our course to the dear farmhouse, and you can better imagine than I express our meeting with my dear father and mother, and my beloved Davers and Pamela, who are charming babies. But is not this the language of every fond mamma? Miss Goodwin is highly delighted now with my sweet little Pamela, and says she shall be her sister indeed. For, madam, said she, Miss is a beauty, and we see no French beauties like Master Davers and Miss. Beauty, my dear, said I, what is beauty if she be not a good girl? Beauty is but a specious and, as it may happen, a dangerous recommendation, a mere skin-deep perfection. And if, as she grows up, she is not as good as Miss Goodwin, she shall be none of my girl. What adds to my pleasure, my dear friend, is to see them both so well got over the smallpox. It has been as happy for them as it was for their mamma and her Billy, that they had it under so skillful and kind a manager in that distemper as my dear mother. I wish, if it please God, it was as happily over with my little pretty Frenchman. Everybody is surprised to see what the past two years have done for Miss Goodwin and my Billy. Oh, my dear friend, they are both of them almost, nay, quite, I think, for their years, all that I wish them to be. In order to make them keep their French, which Miss so well speaks, and Billy so prettily prattles, I oblige them, when they are in the nursery, to speak nothing else. But at table, except on particular occasions when French may be spoken, they are to speak in English. That is, when they do speak, for I tell them that little masters must only ask questions for information and say yes or no, till their papas or mamas permit them to speak, nor little ladies neither till they are sixteen, for my dear loves, cry I, you would not speak before you know how and knowledge is obtained by hearing, and not by speaking. And setting my billy on my lap, in Mrs. Presence, Here, said I, taking an ear in the fingers of each hand, are two ears, my billy. And then, pointing to his mouth, But one tongue, my love. So you must be sure to mind that you hear twice as much as you speak, even when you grow a bigger master than you are now. "'You have so many pretty ways to learn one, madam,' says Miss, now and then, "'that it is impossible we should not regard what you say to us. "'Several French tutors, when we were abroad, were recommended to Mr. B. "'But there is one English gentleman, now on his travels with young Mr. R., "'with whom Mr. B. has agreed. "'And in the meantime, my best friend is pleased to compliment me "'that the children will not suffer for want of a tutor.' while I can take the pains I do, which he will have to be too much for me, 
especially that now, on my return, my Davers and my Pamela are added to my cares. But what mother can take too much pains to cultivate the minds of her children? If, my dear Lady G, it were not for these frequent lyings in, but this is the time of life, though little did I think so early I should have so many careful blessings. I have as great credit as pleasure from my little family. All our neighbors here admire us more and more. You'll excuse my seeming, for it is but seeming, vanity. I hope I know better than to have it real. Never, says Mrs. Towers, who is still a single lady, did I see before a lady so much advantaged by her residence in that fantastic nation, for she loves not the French, who brought home with her nothing of their affectation. She says that the French politeness and the English frankness and plainness of heart appear happily blended in all we say and do, and she makes me a thousand compliments upon Lord and Lady Davers' account, who, she would fain persuade me, owe a great deal of improvement, my lord in his conversation, and my lady, in her temper, to living in the same house with us. My lady Davers is exceeding kind and good to me, is always magnifying me to everybody, and says she knows not how to live from me, and that I have been a means of saving half a hundred souls, as well as her dear brothers, on an indisposition of my lord's at Montpellier, which made her very apprehensive. She declared that were she to be deprived of his lordship, she would not let us rest till we had consented to her living with us, saying that we had room enough in Lincolnshire, and she would enlarge the Bedfordshire seat at her own expense. Mr. H. is Mr. H. still, and that's the best I can say of him, for I verily think he is more of an ape than ever. His whole head is now French. "'Twas half so before. "'We had great difficulties with him abroad. "'His aunt and I endeavouring to give him a serious and religious turn, "'we liked to have turned him into a Roman Catholic, "'for he was much pleased with the showy part of that religion "'and the fine pictures and decorations in the churches of Italy. "'And having got into company with a Dominican at Padua, "'a Franciscan at Milan, and a Jesuit at Paris,' They lay so hard at him in their turns that we had like to have lost him to each assailant. So were forced to let him take his own course, for his aunt would have it that he had no other defense from the attacks of persons to make him embrace a faulty religion than to permit him to continue as he was, that is to say, to have none at all. So she suspended attempting to proselyte the thoughtless creature till he came to England. I wish her success here. But, I doubt, he will not be a credit to any religion for a great while. And as he is very desirous to go to London, it will be found when there that any fluttering coxcomb will do more to make him one of that class in an hour than his aunt's lessons to make him a good man in a twelve-month. Where much is given, much is required. The contrary of this, I doubt, is all poor Mr. H. has to trust to. We have just now heard that his father, who has been long ill, is dead. So now he is a lord indeed. He flutters and starts about most strangely, I warrant, and is wholly employed in giving directions as to his morning equipage. And now there will be no holding him in, I doubt. 
except his new title has so much virtue in it as to make him a wiser and better man. He will now have a seat in the House of Peers of Great Britain, but I hope, for the nation's sake, he will not find many more like himself there. For, to me, that is one of the most venerable assemblies in the world, and it appears the more so since I have been abroad. For an English gentleman is respected, if he be anything of a man, above a foreign nobleman, and an English nobleman above some petty sovereigns. If our travelling gentry duly considered this distinction in their favour, they would, for the honour of their country, as well as for their own credit, behave in a better manner in their foreign tours than, I am sorry to say, some of them do. But what can one expect from the unlicked cubs, pardon the term, sent abroad with only stature to make them look like men, an equipage to attract respect, without one other qualification to enforce it? Here, let me close this, with a few tears, to the memory of my dear Mrs. Jervis, my other mother, my friend, my adviser, my protectress in my single state, and my faithful second and partaker in the comforts of my higher life and better fortunes. What would I have given to have been present, as it seems she so earnestly wished, to close her dying eyes? I should have done it with the piety and the concern of a truly affectionate daughter. But that melancholy happiness was denied to us both, for, as I told you in the letter on the occasion, the dear good woman, who is now in the possession of her blessed reward and rejoicing in God's mercies, was no more when the news reached me, so far off as Heidelberg, of her last illness and wishes. I cannot forbear every time I enter her parlor, where I used to see, with so much delight, the good woman sitting, always employed in some useful or pious work, shedding a tear to her memory, and in my Sabbath duties, missing her, I miss half a dozen friends, methinks, and I sigh in remembrance of her, and can only recover that cheerful frame which the performance of these duties always gave me, by reflecting that she is now reaping the reward of that sincere piety which used to edify and encourage us all. The servants we brought home, and those we left behind, melt in tears at the name of Mrs. Jervis. Mr. Longman, too, lamented the loss of her in the most moving strain. And all I can do now, in honor of her memory and her merit, is to be a friend to those she loved most, as I have already begun to be, and none of them shall suffer in these concerns that can be answered now she is gone for the loss of so excellent a friend and relation is loss enough to all who knew her and claimed kindred with her. Poor worthy Jonathan, too, tis almost a misery to have so soft, so susceptible in heart as I have, or to have such good servants and friends as one cannot lose without such emotions as I feel for the loss of them. His silver hairs, which I have beheld with so much delight, and thought I had a father in presence, when I saw them adorning so honest and comely a face, are now laid low. Forgive me. He was not a common servant. Neither are any of ours so, but Jonathan excelled all that excelled in his class. 
I am told that these two worthy folks died within two days of one another, on which occasion I could not help saying to myself, in the words of David, over Saul and his son Jonathan, the namesake of our worthy butler, they were lovely and pleasant in their lives, and in their deaths they were not divided. I might have continued on in the words of the royal lamenter, for surely never did one fellow-servant love another in my maiden state, nor servant love a mistress in my exalted condition, better than Jonathan loved me. I could see in his eyes a glistening pleasure whenever I passed by him, if at such times I spoke to him, as I seldom failed to do, with a God bless you too, in answer to his repeated blessings. He had a kind of rejuvenescence, may I say, visibly running through his whole frame, and now and then, if I laid my hands upon his folded ones, as I passed him on a Sunday morning or evening, praying for me, with a, How do you do, my worthy old acquaintance? His heart would spring to his lips in a kind of rapture, and his eyes would run over. Oh, my beloved friend, how the loss of these two worthies of my family oppresses me at times. Mr. B. likewise showed a generous concern on the occasion, and when all the servants welcomed us in a body on our return, Methinks, my dear, said he, I miss your Mrs. Jervis and honest Jonathan. A starting tear, and they are happy, dear honest souls, and a sigh, were the tribute I paid to their memories, on their beloved masters so kindly repeating their names. Who knows, had I been here, but away to painful reflections. They lived to a good old age, and fell like fruit fully ripe. They died the death of the righteous. I must follow them in time, God knows how soon. And, oh, that my latter end may be like theirs. Once more, forgive me, my dear friend, the small tribute to their memories, and believe that I am not so ungrateful for God's mercies as to let the loss of these dear good folks lessen with me the joy and delight I still have left me, in the health and the love of the best of husbands and good men, in the children, charming as ever mother could boast of, charming, I mean, principally, in the dawning beauties of their minds, and in the pleasure their towardliness of nature gives me, including, as I always do, my dear Miss Goodwin, and have reason to do, from her dutiful love of me, an observation of all I say to her, in the preservation to me of the best and worthiest of parents, hardy, though aged as they are, in the love and friendship of good Lord and Lady Davers, and my excellent friend Lady G, not forgetting even worthy Mr. Longman, God preserve all these to me, as I am truly thankful for his mercies. And then, notwithstanding my affecting losses, as above, who will be so happy as I? That you, my dear Lady G, may long continue so, likewise in the love of a worthy husband, and the delights of an increasing hopeful family, which will make you some amends for the heavy losses you have also sustained in the last two years of an affectionate father and a most worthy mother, and in Mrs. Jones of a good neighbor, 
praise your ever affectionate friend and servant p b end of letter ninety nine